Hi folks, welcome to episode four of the World Water Nation podcast, where we'll be continuing our conversation with Dr. Peter Caddick Adams about the Battle of the Bulge. In this second instalment, we discuss various aspects of the campaign, including terrain and weather conditions, and how these impacted proceedings and compared to the 1940 invasion. We'll also find out how well prepared the men of both sides were to cope with these circumstances, as well as look at how events unfolded on Saturday the 16th December 1944, that very first day of the offensive, and look at the Allied reaction to this sudden surprise attack. the weather like for the troops operating and fighting in the Ardennes? Was it continually snowy and were conditions uniform the whole way across the front or could they vary? If we look at the popular conception of weather in the Ardennes in the winter of 1944, it isn't all snow. Um, Snow and fog are the conditions required in Hitler's mind for launching the assault. Um, He has his U-boats reporting the weather out in the North Atlantic uh, and 10 days after they start transmitting word of thick mist, uh, heavy fog, sleet and snow, he's going to launch the assault. So that's how we get to HR and D-Day, as it were. Um, but the conditions vary through the Ardennes because the, you have very deep valleys, um, you have high peaks, uh, you have wide open plains, uh, you have rivers uh, and you have densely wooded areas. Uh, and the Ardennes, even today, is a really weird microcosm of weather and climate. If you were to go to the Formula One circuit at Spa, you can be watching the cars zoom past you in heavy rain, and half a mile down the road they'll be in broad sunlight. Or you can get a a weird mix of sort of sun and mist. Uh, So that is exactly what's going on in the, the winter of 1944. So our Hollywood idea of thick snow everywhere or heavy mist doesn't reflect the reality Um, and even on day one uh, there's there's a lot of variation if you look at the black and white photographs some are taken in deep snow and in other areas there's not a drop of snow to be seen the significant thing and a lot of people forget this is that on boxing day the 26th of december uh, the clouds clear and that allows the Allied fighters to sweep down on the uh, the German ground troops and all, all the vehicles. Uh, so the weather does clear. It, it then um, closes in even worse in many ways uh, in early to, to, to mid-January. So the weather varies hugely, and it's not just a consistent single large snowfall. Given these harsh conditions in which these men are to operate, were the Allies well prepared and equipped to cope with this? Today, we're used to fighting troops having a variety of clothing and equipment suitable for the conditions in which they fight, whether it's desert, whether it's Arctic. Uh, In 1944, there are no special winter clothes available either to the Germans or or to the Americans, for that matter. Uh, Essentially, you've got a great coat if it gets a bit colder. Uh, You might have a rubberized Macintosh or overcoat if it gets wet, but that's about it. What you're wearing to fight through Normandy uh, in the middle of summer is exactly the same as what you've got to cope with in the plunging temperatures of that winter uh, in the Ardennes. Uh, And that makes life very, very miserable for the soldiers indeed. Once you get wet, you've got no means of getting dry. Uh, 
Um, none of the boots are waterproof, uh, and that means you're going to get a very large number of cases of trench foot. It's a bit like the early months of the First World War all over again, and both sides are going to suffer equally. What sort of rations did both sides have to survive on during this period? If we look at the conditions the soldiers uh, are enduring on both sides um, in the Ardennes, the Germans are already on very short rations. It's partly because their logistics is sort of broken down. Uh, they can't import any foodstuffs from uh, elsewhere around the world. Uh, and most of the food is going to the Eastern Front. Um, so soldiers' rations are very, very poor for the Wehrmacht uh, and, and the SS. It does mean that uh, when they meet the Americans on superb rations, great combat rations, uh, lots of um, fresh food, uh, warm hot food, uh, and the very beginnings of sort of uh, packet consumer goods, um, powdered coffee, things like this, things the Germans have never ever come across um, and would have no access to. What we find is that combat does slow down and stop whenever the Germans come across American rations because they're hungry and the quality of American food is so much better than that of the Germans. This is a deal breaker um, for every German unit. They all talk about the, the magnificence of American rations uh, and things like the availability of chocolate. Most Germans hadn't seen chocolate in any shape or form for three or four years beforehand. Uh, and here are the Americans with Hershey bars flowing out of um, every single supply vehicle. Uh, so in some instances, combat actually stops when the Germans find American rations. And in fact, we can go further than that. Um, it's not just food um, or the instance of hot food. Um, it's, it's the things you don't necessarily think about, like cigarettes. Now, cigarettes are very important to soldiers of whatever nationality. Uh, and there's something about tobacco and war that seems to go together. Um, if you light a cigarette, there's warmth there and the act of lighting a cigarette bonds you closer with, with, with your fellow soldiers. All sorts of different things. Tobacco also dulls the appetite, keeps you awake. So cigarettes and soldiers are very important. German cigarettes are tailing off in quality and in numbers. Uh, and yet the Americans have got huge, huge numbers of, of cigarettes available. Uh, they're issued in ration packs, 20 per day per soldier uh, at the very minimum. And they're of much, much better quality. And the names we sort of know today, Camels, Chesterfields and so on, Lucky Strike. So again, the Germans will do anything to get hold of American tobacco. Um, and that's significant. If you start to plan your attacks around where you think the American uh, food and ration dumps are, it tells you a lot about the, the paucity of rations in the Wehrmacht at the time. So if the common perception is the German army are following the trail of where American fuel dumps are, if they were following anything, it's where American food and cigarettes are, not fuel. Was the weather during the offensive something of a double-edged sword for the German forces? Mm -hmm. And arguably, were they better equipped and prepared logistically to cope with these conditions, given the, their experience on the Eastern Front? Or oh. were the Americans potentially better equipped with the Red Bull Express? One of the big deciders of the Ardennes offensive is logistics, and it's the unsexy part of war. We tend to think of tanks and aircraft and all the rest of it. Uh, what's going to drive success or failure is whether the Germans can sustain their campaign or whether the Americans can just simply move enough resources in to block the German advance. So logistics drives both sides. 
Um, the Americans have far more resources, far more manpower, far more trucks, far more fuel to um, power the trucks. So ultimately, they're always going to be the winner in any race of resources, and the Germans can't compete with that. Uh, the Germans have, may have, in some instances, better equipment. Um, but for the most part, if we're talking an overview of logistics, and it is the driver, the, the Americans are always going to win. Um, and they're going to be quicker than the Germans, too. The one thing the Germans have got going for them, and I would argue the only thing, is surprise. But surprise runs out very, very quickly. Uh, and it's worth two or three days to the Germans at most. And after that, the, the Americans will wake up to what's going on. And, and that's really when the, the scales will tip against the Germans. Now, if we look at the actual conditions, the assault is chosen in midwinter because that shuts out Allied air power. But the assault has also itself got to march or drive through thick snow and navigate through thick mist. Now, the reason why Hitler has chosen the Ardennes is because he did so well there in 1940, led by Rommel and others. And if their opponents in the Ardennes, then the French and the Belgians, garrison towns and won't let them go, towns like Bastogne or St. Leith or all the other little route centres in the Ardennes, in the summer months you can drive off-road through the forest and around the towns. In the dead of winter, with snow at least two feet thick, if not thicker, and mist, almost no maps by which to navigate, you can't do that. So the very conditions that Hitler picks um, that help Surprise are also going to hinder him, because once Surprise has been used up as a, a, a factor of war, everything else is loaded against him. How did events unfold on the morning of the 16th December 1944? And what sort of tactics did the Germans employ in their initial assault? Did it vary by sector? Well, one thing we can say about the 16th of December is it's a huge shock for the American defenders. Very few have got any inclination that there's anything untoward about to happen. Um, so that's a huge plus for the Germans. Um, they're also attacking at, you know, in the pre-dawn hours, uh, where biologically the human body is at its lowest ebb. That's why the Gestapo and the KGB always knock on your door at sort of four in the morning. Um, so it's a great time to attack if you know where you're going and you've got the sufficient light. And the Germans have combated the light problem by copying an idea the British used in Normandy, which is to shine searchlights on the cloud and the indirect light illuminates your battlefield with a quality of illumination that's better than moonlight and in a lot of sectors this is what the Germans do especially where there's an infantry attack so the troops can see where they're going the Americans aren't really sure what's going on with this light coming up and the whole thing is preceded by a massive artillery barrage um, now the Americans weren't expecting this certainly weren't expecting lots of guns uh, all along the front it's deafening um, the Germans have taken their time to pinpoint where the American bunkers are, where the headquarters are. So the best thing that the Germans managed to achieve is they separate the headquarters from all their constituent units that they're commanding. And that's something you want to achieve in any any battle, any time. Um, the Germans deliver that. Their artillery is very effective. 
but for troops who've never been under fire before, there's a very high percentage in the Ardennes who haven't, uh, you know, this massive artillery barrage is frightening. The Germans fire everything, so you've got V1 rockets firing overhead going off towards the uh, port of Antwerp and Brussels and elsewhere, um, you've got railway guns, uh, you've got field artillery, you've got mortars, you've got Nebelwerfer firing rockets, and the whole thing creates this huge cacophony of noise, so there's a psychological dimension there as well. Uh, and then out of that, you get infantry units sort of um, skirmishing their way forward, um, and a lot of the American defenders still caught in their bunkers, so they're captured before they can even manner a gun to defend themselves, uh, and it's all disorientating and frightening. But not if you're an experienced frontline GI who's seen this before. And that's why the German performance is going to be uneven. Um, yes, they're fired in, but terrain is then going to make a difference. So in the south, there's a river line to be crossed. The Germans have got hardly any good engineers, and the engineers they have been given are civilians who aren't used to any of this. The Germans haven't got any good bridging, so you've got civilian engineers who've got to hand-make bridges out of any bit of wood that they can bring forward who aren't used to being in combat. So... There's a, the, the, the German advance into to Luxembourg before towns like Diekirch is very slow, very ponderous, because the engineering sources aren't, aren't really there. The further north you get uh, is determined partly by the quality of the American opposition um, and the terrain, uh, and where you've got good roads and you can l come upon the Americans by surprise, then the Germans do spectacularly well. But it's sloppy shorthand to say the Germans arrive in huge numbers, pour out of the woods and overwhelm the American def defenders in every sector. That's simply not the case. It's uneven. Uh, and the biggest advantage the Germans have is that a lot of Americans do take their heels and run. And that spreads confusion and fear. Because, well, soldiers at the front may be more combat hardened, the further back you go in any army, the more you encounter rear echelon troops, service troops, logistics troops, who are going to be more panicked by the, the, the idea of German tanks just around the corner or a major German assault. So in many ways, the best weapons the Germans have in that first 24 hours, 48 hours, is fear. And that permeates right through to the, the rear echelon troops who simply take to their heels and run uh, either in their vehicles or abandon their vehicles. And some of the heavy artillery way behind the lines is just abandoned, pushed to the side of the road uh, as uh, artillerymen. All sorts of different um, other groups um, decide that, that that cup of coffee 50 miles to the rear is exactly what they want at this moment in time. So I'm not accusing any particular unit of falling down on their duties but this is what happens uh, and it happen, it, it, it's happened to all armies at all times uh, and it's the Americans who are just on the receiving end of an unpleasant surprise. How quickly did the Allied High Command realise the full scale of events unfolding the Ardennes and what were their reactions and actions to counter this? There have been a lot of bad films made about the Battle of the Bulge, and 
often they communicate the fact that the Allies realise pretty quickly what the Germans are up to, uh, and then it's the time taken to create the response. It takes a whole day for news of the attacks at the front to permeate back to uh, Allied High Command and Eisenhower's headquarters is in Paris. There are isolated reports that come back of incursions of the Germans through the Allied front. Um, it takes a long time to link those together and realise this is a major attack. Uh, and that evening, that first evening of the 16th of December, I'm not sure even Eisenhower is quite sure what's going on. There's a very fortuitous happening on that first day, the 16th of December, which is that Bradley, who's the, the, the army commander on the ground, has come back to confer with his old mate and friend Eisenhower in Paris. So when news of the attack breaks, the two of them are together. Now, given the time of year, given the poor quality of the roads, given the fact you can't fly, uh, and communications is, is very, very poor at that particular moment in time because of the weather, that's a real plus for the Allies, and it might have bought the Germans perhaps another day or more had they not actually happened to be meeting when the reports of the attacks come through. So they can coordinate their response because they're in the same room. Uh, and... First thing is to work out how big a threat this is. They're not sure, but it does seem by the end of the day that many different German divisions have been identified coming through the lines. Uh, so, and this is where chiefs of staff make a, a, a huge difference. Um, there's a very poor intelligence picture, but they start to spread maps out on the floor, work out what's going on uh, and coordinate their response. And this is when Eisenhower deploys his reserves, which are the 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions. So that all happens very quickly, but that's just a piece of luck on the Allies' side, probably the only piece of luck that the Allies have on the 16th of December. One example you give in your book of how one man or a small unit can make a big difference um, is the 18-man Iron R platoon of Lef Lieutenant Lyle Box. Um, how important was their role in the Allied defence in these early stages and as an indicator of the defensive actions that were going on across the entire front? I talk a little bit about uh, Lieutenant Lyle Bulk in the, the um, intelligence and reconnaissance platoon that he's got um, stationed just overlooking a small village. Uh, and the Germans come through, um, he's identified... The Germans make a lot of attacks on his position and I think he makes a real contribution uh, not only tactically but he represents what Americans are doing all along the front and a lot of these brave defenders are killed and we know nothing more about them but in his case a remarkably high number survive through his leadership and so he represents far more and essentially what happens is he has well cited his positions before the attack comes in. Uh, he has uh, an instinct that tells him something is wrong along the front. There's too much noise. Uh, when the attack comes in, uh, because he's sort of half anticipated it, his men are, are ready. Um, when communications are cut off with um, his higher command, and he sort of has the option, I suppose, to flee or fight, he decides to fight. His leadership ensures that all men stay and fight and do to the best of their ability um, because their positions are pre-prepared and well covered. Uh, very few casu They suffer very few casualties until the Germans are in their trench positions. 
Um, and it also underlines how ill-prepared the Germans are, because the German unit that identifies the American position are paratroopers, but these are, um, because of the way Himmler has recreated the German forces uh, in the autumn of 1944, uh, these, may, these men may bear the uniform of the Luftwaffe, most have never jumped out of a plane, um, they're called paratroopers because the, the ground combat troops that the Luftwaffe own at that stage generally are called paratroopers. But um, they have no paratrooper training. Um, they're not combat hardened. Uh, and so the battalion that are caught by Lyleborg's platoon make three battalion-sized charges across open fields the size of football pitches are mown down in huge numbers. And Lyobork effectively holds up the advance in his sector by just killing large numbers of Germans who are making ill-thought-out frontal attacks uh, against his position. Uh, and the moment the Germans realise what's happening to them, and it takes a long time for the penny to drop, uh, and they make a flanking attack instead of a fr frontal attack, they're into the American position uh, and it's rolled up and the Americans are generally taken prisoner. Um, so that does two things. It tells us how well the Americans are led in some places, and for that, replicate that right across the front, stay in your position, lead it well, and fight a rearguard action, and that holds the Germans up. It also underlines just how bad some of the German uh, assaulting units are, and they may have smart names, like Fallschirmjäger paratroops, uh, Volksgrenadier units, uh, and, and all of this may sound very impressive, they may have high numbers of automatic fire weapons, submachine guns, but there's nothing that can make up for their lack of training. And even if you're a newly arrived unit and you've had 18 months of training in the UK and, and the United States and you're superbly resourced, that's eventually going to win you the day. Now, the other point to bear in mind is the Germans are running to a very strict timetable. They know the Americans will wake up sooner or later and they've lost their element of surprise. So to maximise the advantage that surprise gives you, you've got to use that two or three day window to get to the River Meuse and as far beyond it as possible. Very strict timetable, higher commanders leaning, uh, breathing down the, uh, the necks of all their junior subordinates all the way down the line in the German armed forces. So what Lyle Bork is doing with his intelligence and reconnaissance platoon is he's putting grains of sand in the German war machine. It's got to be running as smoothly and as fast as possible in the first few days of the campaign. Uh, and with all these sort of pinpricks or grains of sand, that's being disrupted. And all you need is lots of little Lyle Borks right across the front to slow the German war machine down and the whole thing will grind to a halt. And that's what's happening. Lyobork holds the advance up in his sector for a day. And this explains why the guys coming along behind Lyobork, which happened to be uh, Jochen Piper and his first Panzer regiment of the, the, uh, the Adolf Hitler division, are so furious and angry because they've already lost 24 hours and that has been bought by 18 men in a very small unit uh, on top of a hill uh, against which the Germans have just thrown pretty ineffective attacks given the amount of men and firepower they had at their disposal. One area we visited during our trip was the town of Bastogne. Um, mm -hmm. Why was it so important to both sides? 
Bastogne has a special role in the Battle of the Bulge because historically, and certainly in 1944, the main route centre in the whole region is Bastogne. It's where most of the major roads pass through, but also um, the railway lines. And therefore, if you're in possession of Bastogne, you can slow any advance down that's trying to get through the Ardennes, especially in a hurry. There are other route centres as well that are just as important, St Vith certainly uh, a bit further north, but Bastogne is the biggest. Uh, and so that's why it becomes the focus of fighting. It was never intended by either side to be. Um, and that's why it's of significance even today to us. And indeed, driving through the Ardennes, as you will have found, you can't avoid road signs pointing towards Bastogne. So it's still as important today. Bastogne was virtually undefended during those early days. There was actually a race between the Germans and the Americans to get there. How did the Germans fail to reach it before the Americans? Before the campaign opens, Bastogne is the headquarters of 8 Corps, which is the, the major American unit defending that sector. Uh, and the moment the campaign sort of starts to uh, unfold, Middleton is ordered out of Bastogne and leaves with all his headquarters. He's not fleeing, he's actually ordered back to a safer position, and that makes perfect sense. That leaves Bastogne open and undefended, but remember on the evening of the 16th of December, Eisenhower has already ordered the 101st to go to Bastogne because it's a route centre. Whether or not there's going to be fighting there, it's somewhere that needs to be held by a good um, formation. The Germans also are, are fixated by their route going to the River Meuse that will take them through Bastogne. Uh, and the, the armoured unit that's heading in that direction is Panzer Lehr, um, Germany's best, uh, most combat efficient uh, armoured formation. Um, there's still a Panzer Lehr in the German army today. Uh, and what it is, is it's all the training regiments and units that have been collected together. So the Germans have now stopped training their armoured units and all the trainers have formed a division themselves. So that's what Panzerlehr is and, and means. Um, it's led by Rommel's former chief of staff, uh, Fritz Bayerlein, uh, and he's been with them through the hell of Normandy. Um, so uh, they're extremely combat hardened. I think at this stage, Bayerlein is past his best. Um, he's given poor information about which are the best routes to reach Bastogne. Uh, he doesn't want to engage with a major American formation uh, in case that holds him up or um, he loses lots of his tanks. So he's twisting and turning his way uh, through the countryside, partly on the information he's got from maps, partly from prisoners, partly from Belgian farmers. And he's told that um, there's an American unit uh, manoeuvring around to his front in the dark, in the mist, uh, so he picks uh, another route, which is actually nothing more than a muddy track, and it slows him right down. Um, it is also said that uh, along the way, he captures an American field hospital, uh, and uh, he's bewitched, by his own account, uh, by one of the nurses. And during crucial hours... He spends his time talking to this nurse. We're told it's only talking, but who knows? Uh, talking to this American nurse, who he finds completely captivating. Um, and at some stage or other, snaps out of this, resumes the advance. But at the crucial moment, Panzerlehr has ground to a halt. 
its commander is busy chatting um, to a prisoner. Uh, and that tells me that I think Byline has passed his best. Um, he's served for many years in the Western Desert under Rommel and in Normandy, and I think he's combat-tired. And if you have been in continuous frontline fighting for year after year, I think it is very easy to lose the plot. And this, to me, is an instance of a personal flaw in a command. It's quite understandable, but he's just tired. And that may hold good for some of his sort of subordinate commanders as well. So partly through poor intelligence, partly through a lack of urgency, it has to be said, and even Byline admits this after the war, um, the German advance on Bastogne is slower than it should be. And if you think of it from a German point of view, they didn't realise this was a race. They just thought they had to get to Bastogne, and whoever was defending it was already there and defending it. In fact, there was almost no one there, and the 101st Airborne Division are rushing to get there in time. And so Byline loses a crucial few hours that would have put him in Bastogne before the American Airborne Division, and therefore the Germans could have had it. There wouldn't have been a siege of Bastogne, and uh, the 5th Army Panzer thrust led by Panzerlaire would have been miles further ahead, uh, and that part of the battle would have played out very differently. So just as we can say with Lyle Bork defending his little sector, um, holding up the Germans, one man can make a difference. Uh, and in Lyle Bork's case, it's a lieutenant running a platoon. Um, in Panzerlehr's case, it's the divisional commander who is either tired or bewitched or captivated or just combat exhausted who doesn't realise time is slipping through his hands all the time, and he lingers, Panzerlehr doesn't have the sense of urgency it needs, and effectively they lose, they've already lost the campaign by the time they've failed to get to Bastogne. What were conditions like for the 101st Airborne Division, as well as the others that were rushed 120 miles to the Ardennes from France? OK, well, if we start to think about the airborne troops now rushing to the aid of the defenders uh, in the Ardennes, the two airborne divisions, the 82nd and 101st, have just been in continuous combat in the Arnhem Offensive Operation Market Garden and the subsequent fighting in the weeks afterwards. And they've only just been given R&R in Reims. Uh, and in some cases, they have literally... Uh, just got out of their trucks and they're enjoying their first 24 hours of drinking, uh, womanising, sleeping uh, and all the rest of it. And almost immediately the military police round them all up and saying you're back up to the front, the Germans have just launched an unexpected attack. So the 101st are remarkably unimpressed by this. They're, uh, they're also very tired. Um, and for the first time in their careers they're now going into battle without exiting from a plane. And the measure of the seriousness of the situation is that they're conveyed like cattle in the backs of trucks. They're all standing up so you can get more people in a truck. And it's any truck, uh, any six-wheeled truck that happens to be passing down the road is emptied of its cargo and men are put inside. Uh, articulated lorries that would have been carrying stores around in the channel ports are uh, directed to Reims 
and you are packing hundreds of men standing up in the back of an articulated truck. Anything that will get the division and all its equipment to Bastogne in a hurry. So you're going through the night in freezing sub-zero conditions. I interviewed one soldier who said his job, standing at the tailboard of his truck, uh, was to empty the urine out of the helmet into which everyone had urinated. So it's not pleasant. And that's before you've even got there. Now, your paratroops, you don't have much heavy equipment. Um, you're then going into the perimeter of Bastogne. Um, you don't know the ground. In most cases, you've arrived at night um, and you're digging in uh, in the villages and woods uh, in and around Bastogne. The only piece of equipment you've got with which to dig in is your entrenching tool. Um, and if you've ever tried to dig into a forest, the first thing you bump into is tree roots. Um, we're talking about uh, mid-December, so the ground is frozen for the first few inches. Um, so if you're trying to uh, dig in with an entrenching tool that has the value of a toothpick in frozen ground amongst tree roots, to get any meaningful trench that's going to be feet deep is almost impossible. Uh, and added to that, there are Germans in the vicinity. Uh, and we've got plenty of eyewitness accounts of the 101st digging in, shouting across to another guy who's digging in a few feet away and discovering that he's a German. And the troops are hopelessly intermingled. So that's, that's the experience of the 101st arriving at Bastogne. It's complete chaos. Um, they've arrived so hurriedly they don't have enough weapons and ammunition. So in the first instance they take all the weapons and particularly ammunition and hand grenades and things like that from the retreating GIs who've got rather frightened or are wounded and are coming back through um, the 101st lines. And that in itself is a dent in your morale. We're digging in to defend this place. All these other guys are actually bugging out of this and are going to leave us to it. So it's even more tribute to them, and in fact their colleagues of the 82nd further north as well, that they do as well as they eventually achieve, because the odds are seriously stacked against them. Everyone knows of General McAuliffe's famous nuts reply to the Germans called to surrender, but how did he find himself in charge as acting commander of the 101st at this time? Well, we all know about um, uh, General McAuliffe defending uh, Bastogne. The interesting thing is he shouldn't have been defending Bastogne at all. But all the senior commanders, both of the airborne divisions and their corps, are either in conferences in the United Kingdom or back in the United States. And it underlines how little the Allies expected a German attack if all the senior command are, are away at this time. Um, so McAuliffe, who's the commander of the division's artillery, is acting divisional commander just for a few days while the senior folk are all away. Um, so it's he who takes the 101st uh, to Bastogne, um, sees them through the siege, uh, and his performance is so um, unexpected, so professional, that in January he's given his own division. Now that's a break in, and a promotion he would never normally have expected. Uh, and he, he's just given the opportunity to prove what a competent commander he is. But in the wider context, it, it illustrates how much of an unpleasant surprise this is, because there are commanders at every level for all sorts of le legitimate reasons away uh, from uh, their units. Um, and had the Germans known this, I think they could have exploited the situation even more. 
Thank you for listening. We do hope you've enjoyed this episode. Part three will be following very shortly. In it, we examine Germany's use of special forces in terms of the American disguised commandos and the airborne deployment of the Fallschirmjägers in this campaign. We'll also be looking at that crucial element of warfare of supplies and logistics. Added to this, we discuss air power and its contribution on both sides, as well as examine the often overlooked British role in the Battle of the Bulge. <laughs>